Facts are like soft clay in the social media age, and the most skilled sculptors seem to reshape them to their needs. But would the world be a better place if lying were illegal and a severely punishable offense? And what is the truth anyway? Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of the Evolve Faster Podcast. I'm Scott Ely. The truth is clay in the hands of a sculptor. It wasn't a lie, Truman replied forcefully, but even he heard his own voice waver. The bright lights and his inquisitor's eyes burned down on him, and the lack of reply told him they didn't believe him. His heart beat rapidly, and a cold sweat chilled him. Just this morning, he was eating breakfast and thinking about his upcoming vacation. And now, he sat fearing for his life and reflecting on his situation, wondering how things had gone downhill so quickly. Truman lived in a country more prosperous than any country before. The secret to its prosperity could be summarized in a single rule that had never been tried before in another country. Lying of any kind was a crime both policed heavily and punished severely. After all, it was the key economic driver for the country, so it had to be enforced with an iron fist. As soon as a citizen popped out of her mother's womb, she was taught the fundamental truth. An honest citizen makes the world a better place. If somebody was caught telling a lie, they were sent to a truth course to gently reintroduce them to what the truth is and why it's so important. If somebody was caught telling a lie for the second time, it didn't end well. The banishment of lying resulted in the economy skyrocketing, crime declining, and an absurdly high level of overall happiness. By forcing people to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, the country and its officials achieved wealth and success. At first, people were having a hard time not lying. Forbidding them to lie was like forbidding them to breathe. But soon, like any good animal, the subset of humanity in this particular country learned not to lie. Truman worked for a media company as a copywriter, and his job was to write marketing pieces to bolster subscribers and to make sure the newspaper and online subscriptions sold well. He made sure the titles were intriguing, the text was entertaining, and most importantly, it was all 100% true. That was the law. On the other hand, one doesn't even need to be sarcastic to imagine the problems that newspapers and other media faced in a society where lies were forbidden. Copywriting, like rhetoric, PR, politics, and other forms of marketing, was an art built upon a strong foundation of stretching reality, misdirection of facts, hyperbole, and creative verbiage. In other words, lying. Although overall society was thriving, Truman's media company wasn't doing so well. People just weren't interested in cold facts, data, and boring stories. People wanted intrigue, 
drama, and soap opera kind of stories. As with marketing for the company, it was also hard to create continued interest from customers without some creative lying thrown into the mix. It's natural to search for a scapegoat. Truman, who ran the copywriting department and wrote a lot of the major headlines himself, seemed to be a perfect fit for the goat here. Who better to lose the blame game than the guy who was supposed to be enticing customers to subscribe? He was troubled by this demonizing of his division, but he also couldn't deny that at least some part of the problem was their fault. And by knowing that, he wasn't allowed to lie and act like he didn't. But when it came to fixing the problem, it was a catch-22. On one hand, he needed to increase sales, but on the other, he wasn't allowed to lie, which is technically part of the job description. This bizarre scenario would have even stumped Joseph Heller himself. Finally, one day, the situation boiled over. Truman's boss told him if sales didn't increase by the end of the month, he was gone. This was devastating in the new post-lying economy. Copywriting jobs were seen as very unsavory and were becoming fewer and farther between. Also, an inability to lie made job hunting and interviewing a highly dangerous affair. The result was that people trained for very specific jobs and once they got them, they held on to them until the bitter end. So Truman decided he had nothing to lose. He decided he had to get back to his roots as a copywriter from the previous economy and lie to get sales up. Now, Truman wasn't an idiot. He knew the lies must not be obvious. And he knew he couldn't have any of his team do it because he'd more likely get caught, including others, in his plan. So, he used his copywriting skills to change the critical titles himself for the sake of intrigue. He focused on the top newspaper headlines and on the daily online lead stories, the big hitters that could sway the most readers quickly. As he scanned the options, the lead headline for tomorrow's print edition was an article about artificial intelligence development and how jobs we might have today might disappear in the near future. Instead of the current title, which read, AI might take around 50% of jobs in the next 25 years, he changed it to read, your job will soon disappear due to AI. Small lies, just to make it a bit more interesting, Truman thought. And it was, in fact, more interesting. The article got a 30% boost of online clicks compared to their usual statistics. So for the next couple weeks, Truman continued to stretch the truth, usually in a hyperbolic way like this, to make the stories a little juicier. By month's end, sales of subscriptions jumped significantly and Truman managed to keep his job. But as you might guess, Truman had gotten too bold with his lies and got caught. It happened while he was going back home. Like in Kafka's trial, Truman was grabbed by two men and put into a car. The illusion was so hard to shake that he was sure they would simply take him to a field and, just like Yalzif K, butcher him with a knife like a dog. But to Truman's surprise, nothing of the sort happened. He was instead taken to a beautiful, well-lit room 
crammed with TV screens and a well-dressed old man sitting in the middle. He introduced himself as the professor of truth. Truman looked around the room and allowed himself a smile for a moment. The government must have hired the same decorator as the architect from The Matrix to create this scene. He immediately worried the guy might start speaking nonsense to him, just like that terrible scene he'd always hated. But for the second time, Truman was surprised that nothing of the sort happened next. The professor politely explained that Truman would be attending a truth course due to his recent actions. The first thing we'll talk about is the truth itself and two theories that try to explain it. The correspondence theory and the coherence theory. Later, we will move on to pragmatism and Immanuel Kant's ideas about the truth in the hope that you will come to understand why the government values the truth so much. At first, Truman began to apologize. You need to understand, sir, I didn't lie. I just wrote the title differently, that's all. It was technically still the truth. I don't see any reason why this minor offense should be taken so seriously. I mean, I didn't hurt anybody. The professor looked at him with warm eyes and said, Truman, you might think you didn't hurt anyone with your hyperbolic reconstructions of the truth, but how can you know for sure? And you must understand, if one person is allowed to tell even the smallest lie without repercussion, it will have serious consequences. If our citizens find out one person got away with a lie, soon everyone else will begin to tell lies again. Then someone will tell a bigger lie. And then before long at all, everything we have worked so hard for will crumble like a sandcastle under a wave. You don't have to be afraid, Truman. This course isn't punishment. It's an investment into a brighter future. So let's start investing in our collective future, shall we, Truman? Let's start with the correspondence theory, arguably the most popular concept of the truth. According to the theory, our beliefs are true if they agree with the facts and the physical world. I'd like you, Truman, to think about your belief that is raining outside. Your belief is true if it's raining outside, right? A Welsh philosopher named Bertrand Russell said that the truth or falsehood of belief is always dependent upon something that's outside of the belief itself. So you have the belief it's raining. This can only be true if it's truly raining outside. You could say correspondence always leads to the truth. If we agree on something, then it must be true. Let's look at our country. All citizens believe the fundamental truth is correct. Why? Because when they look outside, they do see a better place, a place that wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for the fundamental truth in this government. This made Truman think about the theory and his situation. Although this theory might be correct for the overall situation in the country, it wasn't correct for his company and for him. While the country was enjoying prosperity, his company was nearing bankruptcy. And if he lost his job, he certainly wouldn't be prospering either. If it weren't for Truman's lie, it surely would have happened already. So how can anyone take the fundamental truth seriously? To Truman, the fundamental truth didn't seem to differ that much from what he did with those article titles. In fact, 
it seemed to him to be the same twisting of the truth. Still, Truman decided to keep quiet as he didn't want to get into more trouble. He just needed to get through this silly course and get on with his life. The professor continued, I'll take your silence to be understanding and agreement. Next, there's the coherence theory, which says your belief is true if it's consistent with an existing belief or knowledge. If you compare the belief of one person with the belief of another, and they correspond, then it must mean it's true. Citizens of this country believe their lives have become better since the law that prohibits lying appeared. As everybody agrees on this, according to the coherence theory, the government is telling the truth, and therefore, the fundamental truth is correct. If it weren't for the citizens' belief in this government and its great idea, we would never have been able to achieve such prosperity. Again, Truman felt as if there was something wrong with what he had just heard. What if the gained knowledge used to verify the truth of a belief is itself false? If somebody told Truman his grandfather had a much harder life than him, he wouldn't have believed it unless his grandfather confirmed it to Truman. So just because this professor is telling him the world is a better place today than it was before, doesn't necessarily mean it's true. How can we know if something is true unless it comes directly from somebody to whom this truth is concerned? This time, Truman couldn't help himself and said, I'm sorry, sir, but have you worked in the media before this job? The professor seemed to ignore his sarcastic question and continued, leaving Truman regretting having tried to lighten the mood. Finally, we'll look at the pragmatist conception of truth. Pragmatists believe the truth must be discussed in terms of its consequences. They think truth and falsehood relate directly to the usefulness of the statement. In other words, if something is useful or successful, then it must be true. Here, Truman, citizens know the government is useful to them. And since it's useful, it must be true. I hope this makes sense to you. Truman didn't know how to respond. He just felt more confused, and he started to believe that this was all some kind of joke. These definitions of the truth seemed to be getting more and more ridiculous and tailor-made for the government to profit from them. Doesn't this pragmatism seem to justify our human tendency to mold our own truth as if it were a piece of clay? And if that's true, then it means the government is also doing the same with their definitions of truth. If so, the fundamental truth can in no way be considered an absolute truth. Truman felt his head was spinning as he tried to figure out what the truth was. It was like asking yourself, doesn't expecting the unexpected make the unexpected expected? It was both a tongue and a mind twister. Where in the hell was Joseph Heller when you needed him? This time, Truman asked, I'm sorry, but I'm a bit confused now. So does our government believe in the existence of morally objective truths, ones that can't possibly be wrong, which apply to everybody? The professor answered, I see it's still not completely clear to you, but I'm glad you're being honest. Let me try to explain it to you further with an example. I assume you've heard of the golden rule. This rule says, 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But as you'll see, this can be exploited because a rule like this would turn a masochist into a sadist and a suicidal individual into a mass murderer. Another version is the silver rule, which says, do nothing unto others you would not have done unto you. But if you give that a thought as well, you'll see you can exploit this one in a similar fashion. A masochist that loves taking pain would just deal physical pain to others. Truman tried to lighten the mood again. Wait, so nobody ever invented the bronze rule? Maybe something even more simple like don't try to create precious metal-themed rules in the first place? The professor gave Truman a nasty look. Apparently, humor was frowned upon as well. Realizing he'd failed, Truman went silent while the professor continued. The government thought hard about what the absolute truth should be to create a perfect society. We finally came to use as guidance what's known as the categorical imperative from the philosopher Immanuel Kant. The categorical imperative is a guideline to finding the collective truth, which says individuals should only perform actions that could function as a universal law. And by functioning as a universal law, in our context, we mean that it would bring prosperity. Let me ask you this, Truman. If you follow Kant's categorical imperative, why is suicide wrong? Truman thought for a second and then answered, maybe because if it were universally practiced, there would be no humans left on this planet. Correct. I'm glad we're making some progress. Kant's idea was to measure if our actions can be universalized. That's his simple criterion. And this is how the government came up with the foundational truth. An honest citizen makes the world a better place. If we tell the truth and nothing but the truth, the world will indeed become a better place. And it has. Don't you agree, Truman? While trying to maintain a poker face, Truman thought to himself, but this still isn't a morally objective truth. It's nothing more than exploitation. Through this model, they still get to mold the clay to their liking and benefit. Maybe it has to be that way for humanity to prosper. Maybe humanity simply needs constraints like this as we're not capable of functioning without them. But for Truman, something still just didn't feel right. As he tried to figure out what to say next, a quote he'd liked from many years prior surfaced in his memory. He had done his degree in journalism and also took a few electives in philosophy and psychology, which he'd enjoyed. It paid off in his copywriting career to know a little more about how the mind could be manipulated with words. So this quote he liked was by William James the so-called father of modern psychology. James had said that the truth is the name of whatever proves itself to be good in the way of belief. Truman was now more and more convinced that his headline lies were the truth as well in a way. It all depended on the point of view from which you observed it. It was a lie for the government because it wasn't useful to them. But to Truman and his company, it was useful. Truman didn't recall the categorical imperatives, but he did remember a few other parts of Kant's work from college. Kant had said that enlightenment is man's release from his self-induced inability 
to make use of his understanding without direction from another. An enlightened person, in other words, is a person who uses critical thinking to get rid of the shackles that tie him to someone else, be it a person or a government. Critical thinking creates an independent individual who doesn't need constraints set onto him by others for the greater good. Instead, the person alone creates the greater good by thinking for himself. This would imply that there are three types of people. First, there are people who don't think for themselves and take everything at face value without questioning. Next, there are people who possess the ability of critical thinking, but they lack the bravery to do anything with it. Finally, there's a small subset of people who do think critically and are also brave enough to take actions. He finally faced the facts. This government had created a world where only the first type of people can exist. Truman was coming to a conclusion he knew would bring him trouble, but he knew he had to do it. He had to let the truth come out, the real truth. Truman, I ask you if you agree, the professor repeated with impatience. Paradoxically, he had to lie for the truth to come out. The only thing the government created was a world where people are afraid to act and think for themselves. So just like with the headlines, Truman knowingly lied again. Yes, I agree. For him, this was the sentence that would set him free. Although a lie for everyone else, for Truman, there probably wasn't a bigger truth. In his studio, under the glow of his reading lamp, George marked the page and looked back at the table of contents in the book of short stories in his hand. He gave the title of the story he was reading another look, The Man Who Sought the Truth. George pulled his fingers through his short gray hair with a deep sigh, something he did whenever he felt agitated. He stood up and looked at himself in a huge mirror hanging on the wall. He saw a skinny man in his 50s, covered in clay spots that had long since dried. George felt even older than he looked. As he was observing himself, he glanced at the huge statue standing right behind him in the corner of his studio. The full-size statue stood stoically, casting a watchful eye over George. Although he wanted to finish the story to find out what would become of Truman, he knew he had to get back to work. He was on a deadline for this piece, and he still hadn't nailed down the final pieces of this particular artistic puzzle. He usually had a tighter plan for each commission, but this one was left wide open to his artistic interpretation. There were some other pressures as well that were clouding his ability to solely focus on the artistic angle for this project. The final vision was eluding him so much, in fact, that he was still in the clay stage even so late in the game. Being a famous sculptor, he had been commissioned to create a statue for one of the most important city parks in the country. Until 10 years ago, nobody knew about George or his work. Then, about a decade ago, his name made its way into many valuable social and media circles across the country. The problem was that his fame was not due to his art so much as it was about his opinions and willingness to share them. He knew there were far better sculptors around, 
But George had something that many of his colleagues lacked. He had a sharp tongue, and he wasn't afraid to cut apart both people and bad ideas with it. It began when George gave an interview that went viral on the internet. In the interview, George was asked to give his opinion on the current state of the country. George spoke his mind, and just a few days later, his statements had spread like wildfire. There was just something tasty to the media about an artist saying things that many people thought but were afraid to say. Many social and political groups attacked George, accusing him of varying forms of social bigotry. The fascinating part was that he was both lauded and attacked from all sides, which isn't easy to pull off these days. Democrats, Republicans, liberals, socialists, extremists, they all suddenly seemed to have a bone to pick or a glass to toast with this sculptor who had been unknown at the time. Soon, his art became the center of this attention as well. As an example, one side claimed George's art was well-organized and subtle communistic propaganda, while the other side in that fight swore George sold his soul to the capitalistic devil. If nothing else, they all finally managed to agree on something. Two cohesive groups formed that either all loved or all hated George. Quite a career accomplishment, George thought, with a wry smile and a slight shake of his head. The truth was, however, his art and its meaning wasn't being correctly characterized by any of those broad brush perspectives. Although George was well aware of his controversial statements, his art had nothing to do with it. George thought of his art as pure, innocent expression and not much else, but it was too late once the fires of the internet spread. As far as anyone else was concerned, George was a political agent with multiple conflicting views disguised as an artist. No matter how many times he tried to demystify the accusations, his attempts were swallowed by the fire of online memes and fabricated truths. George felt like the clay he worked with every day. They would take his art and, like clay, mold it into their own truths to meet their agendas. Then they would present it to the entire world, claiming it was fact and the truth, sometimes even twisting his work or words as some sort of validation. What a bizarre and frustrating world it had become over the last decade as the value of facts had dissolved in an online social world where everyone got a megaphone for free. Now he knew this latest piece, the most significant commission he'd ever received, would likely produce the worst truth-molding and fact-creating experience yet. George still loved creating art, but he now often hated the results. Thanks to his unique brand of fame, he received many commissions, but they usually came at what George thought was an expensive and unfair price. He looked earnestly at the clay model that would later be turned into a magnificent marble statue. It was almost as if George was apologizing to it for the unfair treatment it would soon receive. As he continued working and experimenting with the clay, the story of Truman kept running in his mind. In a way, George felt he was in a similar situation. Everyone around him was trying to convince him in what they firmly believed 
was the only truth. They believed it so much, they would attach competing narratives onto his art. To George, it felt ironic how all the clay pieces he molded out of pure love for his art were then metaphorically molded again by people wearing suits, holding protest signs, and everywhere in between. They didn't even bother to ask him to explain his meaning or his positions anymore. George understood there were certain natural truths, like one plus one equals two, but he knew those truths were a huge minority in comparison to the flexible truths. Nevertheless, it seemed that more and more, everyone enjoyed thinking of their own truths as natural truths. He found it very irritating, and it affected his love for his own art. Even watching TV made him feel sick. If he were to switch from one cable news station to the next, to the next, he'd likely see at least three slanted versions of the truth about the same story. They shape the clay in a certain way, so their audience sees the sculpture in the light they were choosing to shine. One story at a time, people were becoming dependent on other people's truths due to an inability to process the volumes of information available. What these news media outlets chose to show and not to show, and how each was framed, in turn seemed to create new information that was no longer either fact or opinion, but some colluded and corroded version of both. But in the end, who's really to blame, he asked himself aloud. The liar or the person who takes the lies as fact without evaluating them critically? And wasn't it partially or wholly the fault of the viewers giving their precious time to these outlets who were in the business of molding statues of different truths from the same clay facts, he couldn't help finding himself complicit, even, since he did occasionally turn these stations on and do interviews on them. Was the desire to be handed your opinions on a platter without critical thought just too tempting when the volumes of information were so overwhelming? In the end, the people George despised the most weren't those creating the fake truths, but people who fell for them without thinking. All it took was one semi-influential person to say that one of George's sculptures was a direct attack on some group's rights, and the next thing he'd know, an entire herd of people jumped on that bandwagon. It was very clear that things got reposted and retweeted without even reading more than what was usually a poorly worded headline. Why do people fall so easily for lies? Are we so incompetent in critical thinking skills? Why do we let other people determine what we should do and think? Is it because it's much easier to accept statements from an authority than to think for yourself, as Truman was trying to do? That echoey clip floating around online of Timothy Leary saying, think for yourself, question authority, chanted on repeat in his head as he asked himself these questions. And the thought, made him laugh out loud. It was amazing how the mind worked and pulled together ideas like this out of nothingness. As he knelt down to work on an element to try out on the clay model, he noticed an article in the pieces of a recent newspaper he'd used to cover the floor. The article discussed some new drug that supposedly could change one's identity. The pharmaceutical company in charge of creating this drug claimed 
it could change the world. If their test proved to be successful, the drug could help many people. He picked up the page and stared at it through the lens of his current train of thought. Although he could imagine the possible benefits of it, couldn't a drug like this also be exploited in horrible ways? And let's face it, it's highly doubtful the pharmaceutical company was creating this simply because they wanted to help people. The article went on to say, the government was involved in backing the drug's research via some huge grant, a fact that always made George skeptical of motives. The tone of the article was a little slanted too. Maybe the reporter knew someone at the company and was getting free PR? He sighed. What a can of worms it was to try to figure out what the truth was about literally anything. So there was a downside to critical thinking. Trying to be informed enough on everything when information volumes were so immense and the ease of misdirection so simple was truly daunting. He glanced around the papers on the floor and realized that just about every article could be dissected just like this. And many of them seemed like there were similar or worse holes to be poked in them. So what is the real truth? More importantly, will people think for themselves when they read any of these articles? And do they even know why they believe what they believe? Finally, are we all brave enough to seek the actual truth and then live knowing what it is? Or is it a reality that we actually can't handle the truth? If he wasn't on such a roll here, he might have paused to laugh at his mind again for that clever Jack Nicholson reference. George shook his head. If someone had been watching, they now would have assumed he was having a full-on conversation with the statue, an occupational hazard he'd caught himself doing more than once. People can't even see through the illogical accusations of my art. So how can anyone expect something more? Critical thinking is a process and takes discipline for one to master. Although it seems as if most fail, it is still possible. Also, it's the only process that leads to the truth. And because the truth is not always pleasant, critical thinking also requires a conscious practice to remain optimistic in the face of it. The truth is also not what most people desire to find. So understanding this can help us cope with knowing it. George stepped back from his work and nodded at his almost finished model. An acknowledgement of thanks to his old friend for once again lending his clay ear to be bent. He wasn't satisfied with the design or the metaphor of the piece, but he still couldn't really put his finger on what was wrong. He looked at the book resting on the table and decided to finish The Man Who Sought the Truth. At this point, he was spinning his wheels on his statue anyway. George sat back down and continued reading. As the truthful lie, yes, I agree, was leaving his lips, Truman had just enough time to wonder about the world in which he was living. Seemingly, there were no lies, and yet, here Truman was doing this exact thing. How many people in this country get away with lies, although it is supposedly prohibited? Maybe the government's motto that there are no lies in the society is nothing more than a well-covered lie? For the first time since he entered the room, Truman 
gave the screens all around him a detailed look. He had not paid much attention until now, as he was so occupied with his fear of getting in trouble. But now, after some time had passed and he'd somewhat calmed down, he realized the data and images all over the screens had actually been intended for him to see the whole time. And Truman couldn't believe what he was seeing. There might as well have actually been a huge elephant standing there in the room the whole time. Ah, so you finally noticed the screens, Truman, the professor said. It was clear he'd just been staring at him for a while as Truman processed his thoughts and what he was trying hard to interpret from the screens. When people come here, it usually takes them a while to understand what's actually happening. They always seem to be so busy hoping they will get out of here, and to that end, carefully monitoring their every spoken word. I've done this long enough now that I can almost see right into their minds as their wheels are turning, trying to decide how to not get caught and even more lies. Truman was in clear shock. Is all this real? Tell me this isn't real. How can you talk about the truth while being so blunt with what you're actually doing? You didn't even try to hide the screens before I came in here. I don't understand. Also, as Truman was trying to finish this sentence, the same two men came in and grabbed him once again. They know I was lying, Truman thought. What's even worse, they knew I wasn't getting out of here the moment I came in. This time, getting butchered like a dog didn't seem so impossible. But you told me this wasn't a punishment, so you're the one who lied. You lied about the course, and you're lying about the state of this country. Everything is one big lie, Truman yelled at the professor. I wasn't lying, the professor said calmly as Truman was dragged out of the room. As I said, this truly is an investment into a brighter future for this country. That, in fact, is not a lie. The truth is really nothing more than clay in the hands of a sculptor. And as you can see, only one of us can be the artist who creates the rules and the truth. Goodbye, Truman. Back in his studio, George slammed the book closed and stood up. He gave the statue the same stoic look he'd received from her earlier. He finally knew what was missing. He climbed the small ladder he used to reach the higher parts of the piece. In this case, the open book the statue held. This one's for you, my friend, he said aloud as he inscribed a cryptic sentence that only the statue herself would likely ever see inside the book's pages. Next, he stepped down two rungs on the ladder. On the front of the book was a saying which had been strongly recommended in the commission's contract. This was the not-so-subtle wording they would use to specify things he needed to include in the statue if he ever wanted another commission from them. He hated this saying anyway, so this one he'd happily desecrate in exchange for getting blacklisted by this city's council. After making the change, he got down and checked the view from the floor. In lies we trust, he read aloud. This one is for me. For his final change, he climbed back up until his face was directly in front of the statue's face. Who would be the subject of the statue and how she would be portrayed had already been a source of huge controversy 
and the statue wasn't even finished yet. This identity and portrayal was the one they were all going to try and manipulate into their own truths, no matter what George chose to do. George and his chosen subject looked at each other for one final moment, and then, in one fell swoop, George swiped the face clean off, leaving an artistic smudge in its place, a real, natural truth created by the hands of an actual sculptor. Because today, I'm the artist. This one is for you, Truman. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free-thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster. Faster.